I ever tell you that I was a prison guard during the Depression, in charge of death row, that I supervised all the executions? Usually, death row is called the last mile. We called ours the Green Mile. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Green Mile. Now, this here's worth a look. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. I'm not gonna have any trouble with you, big boy. Hosted by Arnie. I'm sorry for what I am. Stuart. It's what you call problem child. And Jacob. Three grown men, outsmarted by mouse. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Anybody wants out, now's the time. After this, there's no turning back. We hope you enjoy the show. We go for the ride now. That's right, we going for the ride. Today we're discussing The Green Mile, starring Tom Hanks, David Morse, Bonnie Hunt, Michael Clark Duncan, James Cromwell, Michael Jeter, Graham Greene, Doug Hutchinson, Sam Rockwell, Barry Pepper, Jeffrey DeMunn, Patricia Clarkson, and Harry Dean Stanton, directed by Frank Darabont. This is the now playing co-host who wants Mae West to sit on my face, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, and for a man pissing razor blades, I'm doing all right. Hmm. Well, why wouldn't you be? We're back at Stephen King. My favorite. <laughs> Our favorite and most long-running series we've ever attempted in now playing. It's 77 installments strong, and we still got about 40 more to go. <laughs> It is longer than a green mile, I will say. And mm -hmm. yet here we are in the 90s. I remember the green mile coming out. I remember being pissed. You, I have mentioned so many times on this podcast and on the book reviews that I was in that Stephen King book club. Every time you put out a new book, I didn't have to worry about it. They'd send me a nice embossed edition hardcover with his signature embossed on it. Not this because he put out six paperbacks. <laughs> They didn't come out in hardback. I was so pissed off that I was not getting the new Stephen King books. I couldn't believe it. And Stephen King was no spring chicken. I was living in constant fear of his death. I was wondering if he was going to live long enough to get all these books out. I think we'll be living with Stephen King books long after he's passed. I just imagine a study where, like, unpublished manuscripts are lying around by the hundreds. I was out of Stephen King by this point, but I kind of wanted to get back into it. Because, yes, as you pointed out, this was a nice marketing gimmick. He had gone back to the Charles Dickens idea of serializing a story. And so this wasn't published as one book in 1996. Every month for six months, he would put out a portion, and it got good reviews. I remember hearing a lot of positive things, but by the time the movie got made, three years later, I was having none of it, because I'll just remind folks, perhaps one of my most unpopular opinions, I detested Shawshank Redemption. I wanted nothing to do with anything that looked like Shawshank Redemption, and let's face it, they made this story look like Shawshank too. Oh, for sure, because I'm not the King fan. I've only read a few King novels. I knew nothing about The Green Mile, but I saw that trailer. I'm like, oh, it's Stephen King and prison guards again. Like, it, it's Shawshank too. Like, maybe not direct sequel, but it feels like a spiritual sequel. And that's that's always how I've kind of thought about this one, even though this has got supernatural stuff and Shawshank didn't. Yeah, you got to give it to Stephen King for using his clout to take adventures in publication. You know, he tried doing one of the first crowdfunded 
made online books, letting people just pay what they wanted. It didn't work, and he, he never finished it. He did straight-to-audiobook. He'd write original screenplays like Sleepwalkers, and he would be the only one with the clout to bring back a serialized novel, and the only one with the balls. When that first book came out, the last book was only coming out six months later, King hadn't finished writing it. He did not have this whole thing written out when it was going into print. <laughs> That was my curiosity, because it's no thing to break up a manuscript you've already written and put it out in serialized fashion, but he was actually doing what Charles Dickens did, which is that, okay, I know I got this kid Oliver Twist, and I gotta come up with something next week. You know, like, he didn't really know, I'm sure he had some ideas about where he wanted to take the story, but he had no finished manuscript uh, by the time that this was in readers' hands. Yeah, Frank Darabont tells the story repeatedly about how he came to this. Is he did Shawshank, Frank Darabont. We've reviewed his The Woman in the Room, Dollar Baby. And, of course, he'd go on to work on Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and things. And most known for Shawshank Redemption, his first film based on a Stephen King novella and became a cultural touchstone and Stephen King went to him and said, I'm thinking about writing this other book, but you probably wouldn't want to do another Stephen King prison movie. And Darabont's like, you're right. Why would I want to revisit that ground? And King's like, okay, well, I'll keep you in mind and you can make a decision when I eventually get around to this. I have an idea. I'll very cynically put forward. Because Shawshank didn't come home with any Oscars. As beloved as that movie is, and it has sat atop the IMDb's favorite forever. Yeah, as long as that website has been running, it's supposedly, according to the people that, you know, vote for those films, that's the best film ever made. But it went home without a statue, because that was the year of Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction. And, more tellingly, it was a flop. It made $30 million worldwide. Like, did not make its money back. It was because it was rediscovered on video and became this sleeper hit. TNT's endless airings made it the cultural <laughs> touchstone it is. Absolutely. So now is our chance to get the money we should have in 1994, damn it. That's what it feels like. It feels like a concoction in which you say, we are going to reap the benefits of what we should have had back in the day. We should have gotten Best Picture. We should have got made $100 million, but we didn't. We were crowded out, and now 1999 will be our year. Well, Darabont said he didn't want to do it. King sent him one of the paperbacks of the first installment of The Green Mile, and Darabont read this first installment and immediately had a change of heart. He's like, I have to direct this film. This must be my next movie. He couldn't get in touch with Stephen King, and so he drove to where Stephen King was. Stephen King was filming his cameo on the TV miniseries The Shining, and so Frank Darabont crashed that production. I wish he had. Which is why Darabont has a cameo in it. To say to King, I have to have this. Give me the rest of the book so I can start the script. And that's when King said, I can't give you the rest of the books. I haven't written them. You're going to have to read them with everybody else. But yes, Darabont quickly got on board with this and wrote the screenplay. These books came out in 96. This movie was filming in January of 99 and out around the holidays of 99. I remember I did go and see this in theaters. I wasn't excited for it. I liked Shawshank, but I didn't consider it a religion. And this one, 
I never read the books, but a friend of mine and I around New Year's one time just were like, what do you want to do tonight? Let's go see a movie. And so we went and saw this. Yeah, I saw this one theatrically with my dad and probably because it was the new movie in theaters that weekend. Like There was no real passion to go see it. But again, Shawshank Redemption Part 2. So I like that film. You could have seen Deuce Bigelow. I'm just saying. Nope. Nope. Never. I've still not seen that. I saw that in theaters, too, so just a few weeks later, though. Tom Hanks was actually competing against himself. This never did hit number one because Toy Story 2, week after week, was pulling in bank. So this one, again, it's funny. My memory was this was the wannabe that nobody likes as much as Shawshank, but, you know, got a Best Picture nomination, got $130 million here in the United States, made four times what Shawshank did. But the truth is, this one in IMDb is number 28. And yeah, I feel like, surprisingly, there are big fans of this movie. I never hear it talked about. I'll say that. People talk about Shawshank a lot whenever King is doing interviews, whenever people talk about King movies, Shawshank always comes up. It is... Again, I say a cultural touchstone. This never comes up. I can't think of too many movie conversations I've had where people start referencing the Green Mile. You tell me it's in the 20s on IMDb? That shocks the hell out of me just because I it doesn't seem to be that popular. I'll tell you how popular it is. My wife and I refer to the Green Mile constantly. Whenever you got to do a long, torturous walk to something that's not going to pay off, we talk about having to do that Green Mile. Like, But that is about <laughs> the extent. Like, I saw this movie once in theaters and never again. So most of Stephen King's later fiction is a Green Mile? You know, we'll find out. I feel like most of his is. Right, yeah. Even the early stuff has problems. I'm going to go ahead and say I did not read this book, but I had a very long road trip, and it seemed like a perfect opportunity to pop in some audio discs. So I had this story read to me for my 12 hours on the road. And, woof, I'll say this. One, yes, it does feel like Shawshank in some areas, but in others, very, very different. And two... I gotta say that when you listen to King Prose unabridged for that period of time, it really becomes obvious how often the man loves to repeat himself. Like, I couldn't believe how many times certain phrases, he's a done Tom Turkey, coffee like the drink but spelt different. You cut just those phrases out of the book, it's got to be at least an hour shorter. I mean, that he just <laughs> loves, you know, and I remember he does that in all his books. It floats down here. Like, he'll grab onto a phrase and just, like, obsessively reprint it and reprint it just like the shining all work no play jack typing it again and again i feel like king can really again if when you don't have the ability to skim it's terrible <laughs> oh yeah this goes back to the stand you don't tell me i'll tell you mm -hmm. that's an in joke for king readers but yeah i did read green mile for the first time for this review as well curious to see what it was all about i was shocked i mean i'd seen the movie i saw the movie over 20 years ago but I had a pretty good memory of it, and reading the book was no surprise. It was... The movie and the book are pretty faithful to each other, I will say. You can actually probably get away with writing a school paper based on watching the movie instead of reading the book. <laughs> but, again, Shawshank, I don't even really remember that short story. I think that all the love is just for that movie, and it didn't really remind me of that short story. It reminded me more of the Sean Penn, Susan Sarandon movie that had come out the year before, Dead Man Walking. 
like which is about capital punishment and the ethics of mice and men and that goddamn TV miniseries that King wasn't allowed to finish Golden Years. If he can't like <laughs> let his Jesus character get done on TV. I'm going to put it on the page. That's what I felt like. I'm just going to transpose the story of my Messiah. What I remember him saying in the intro is he started out with the intention of telling the horrors of the electric chair. This was all supposed to be about the fears of using that device specifically to take prisoners' lives. But I feel like it winds up being much more, again, religious is the word that I would reach for. I mean, yeah, it stars Jesus. Yes. John Coffey, Jesus Christ, J.C., Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not subtle. Right, yeah. A period film set in a prison. I hear that it's going to be Shawshank-like, but because I have conflicted feelings about Shawshank, I put that aside. I came to this movie rather curious. I felt like there was a lot of different movies you could make out of it, which is to say that there was parts that worked and parts that didn't for me on the page. My problem with the book in general is... When reading it as one long novel instead of six broken up novellas or small novels, it feels kind of meandering. It doesn't feel like there's a good through line to those six books. It feels like each one is an anecdote of the people living on this green mile, but it doesn't feel like there's a good climax to it all. You know what I'm saying? Each book has its own climax. It was specifically written to be read as six books. It was not one book that he just chopped in six pieces. But they're not six short stories. It is one piece. Yeah, it is. But I also think you could get away with reading each one individually, especially since he spends so long recapping. You talked about repeating. At the beginning of each of the new books, he spends several pages just giving you the exact same pages that were the end of the previous book and it just didn't flow very well as a cohesive single story is that something frank darabont can fix does frank darabont dare change anything about stephen king other than tacking on a bad ending to the mist this is to be discussed (laughs) well we already discussed that ending i don't think it's that bad but yeah i do think Maybe it's problematic that Frank Darabont is the one directing it because he has such reverence where I would be going in and throwing certain things out. Uh, He's going to make a three-hour movie. He is going to use the clout of Shawshank being this cultural touchstone to say that I can make a movie that doesn't have to be shorned of anything. And so, yeah, that was my nervousness coming to the the movie, was that I felt like there was a good movie in Green Mile. And I'll give this even an extended compliment. Unlike most Stephen King, I actually feel like it got better towards the end than at the beginning. I felt like a lot of it was very predictable. And then I felt very surprised by where things ended up in the end. And you mentioned that Shawshank lost out to everything to Forrest Gump. So if you can't beat him, hire him. Tom Hanks in the lead role. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. I mean, you know, I don't know that I envisioned anybody else uh, when hearing the part. I don't think that the main character is clearly defined. Yeah, who is the main character? That's one of my questions. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about it. Again, I I don't want to spoil too much, but I feel like this this story is more interesting than Shawshank because it is about many things at once. And that means it could go in a lot of different directions. You hire Tom Hanks and you're telling me that not only do we have a saint behind bars, but we have a saint looking out for him as well. Tom Hanks is almost always 
a good guy. And so it really sort of tips the movie into having us be in allegiance with the system. This is a prison movie where we're actually rooting for the prison guards. Kind of rare. Especially compared to Shawshank, which was very anti-prison guard. Mm-hmm. And most prison movies. I, I gotta say, we've covered a few at this point. I mean, I, I consider One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of a prison movie. Cool Hand Luke. It's always like the system, right? Like the prison represents the system trying to beat you down and we're rooting for, you know, the rascal that will not allow his individual accomplishments and identity be destroyed that's not this story and i guess i'm curious to get into to find out what is this story arnie why don't you give him the plot as told in present day bookends the year is 1935 and tom hanks plays paul edgecombe supervisor of the officers guarding death row at cold mountain penitentiary due to the green linoleum on the floor this death row is called the green mile Paul has four officers under him, including the sadistic Percy Wetmore, played by Doug Hutchinson. The other three officers are good men. There aren't many inmates on death row. There's Edward Delacroix, played by Michael Jeter, and there's Arlen Bitterbuck, played by Graham Greene. But when the movie starts, a third inmate arrives, a very large man named John Coffey, pronounced like the drink but not spelled the same, played by Michael Clark Duncan. <laughs> Put that in just for you, Stuart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I helped, didn't I? That's another one that he says about 70 times. <laughs> Coffee was sentenced to death for the rape and murder of two small girls. But there's something a bit magical about Coffee. After he arrives on the mile, a strangely intelligent mouse shows up. Delacroix takes a liking to the trick-performing mouse, who he names Mr. Jingles. Then, with just a touch, John Coffee heals Edgecombe's urinary tract infection. You heard me right. This is the first movie I can think of that really features a urinary tract infection. <laughs> Major plot point in this movie, yeah. Mm -hmm. When Coffee's done healing, a swarm of black insects fly from Coffee's mouth and disappear. We see Bitterbuck is executed and brought in to fill the cell is Wild Bill Wharton, an unruly and violent inmate played by Sam Rockwell. The day before Delacroix's execution, Percy steps on Mr. Jingles, but in front of all the other guards, John Coffey's magic touch is able to heal the mouse before it dies. With everyone, except Percy, seeing Coffey's gifts, Edgecombe decides they're going to stage a small jailbreak. He and the other guards lock up Percy, drug Wild Bill, and take John to the house of prison warden Hal Moores, played by James Cromwell. The warden's wife was dying of a brain tumor, but John Coffey is able to bring the woman back to full health. They then return Coffey to the Green Mile. There, Coffey breathes the black bugs into Percy's mouth. Seemingly possessed, Percy shoots Wild Bill and kills him, and then Percy becomes catatonic. Percy is put in a local mental hospital. Finally, the movie is coming up on three hours, and it's time to execute John Coffey. Edgecombe doesn't think he can go through with it, especially since Coffee's magic touch showed Edgecombe that Coffee was not guilty of the murders for which he was convicted. But Coffee says he's tired and ready to die, so with tears streaming down their faces, the guards on the Green Mile execute John Coffee in the electric chair. The bookend then returns to present day where we see Paul, played by Dabs Greer. Paul is 108 years old, having been granted an extraordinarily long life by John Coffee's touch. He wonders how much longer he has left to live as credits roll. Yeah, that frame story is, I just want to give a compliment straight up. Thank God they decided to get an old actor who kind of <laughs> looks like Tom Hanks. I really didn't want to see Tom Hanks put on latex and dot her around a nursing home with actors 30, 40 years older than him. 
No, no, no. Disagree completely. First of all, when I was reading the book and trying to remember the movie, I'm like, they're probably just going to cut this whole frame story out. There's actually a lot more to it Mm. in the book. There's a mean orderly, much like Percy's a mean guard, and they draw those parallels. And I'm like, they're just going to cut all this out. But when they start with this, and I see they are going to have this frame story. I'm like, why didn't they just get Tom Hanks? This guy looks nothing like Tom Hanks. He doesn't act like Tom Hanks. It turned out that they did do old age makeup tests with Tom Hanks and they're on the Blu-ray. I got to see them. Darabont said the makeup just wasn't convincing. I disagree. I think Tom Hanks' performance was good enough. I think the makeup was good enough. I think they should have done Tom Hanks in the makeup. This guy is... His name's Dab Greer. I'll call him Drab Greer because he is no Tom Hanks to watch introduce this story. I mean, it's just a weird opening. Anytime it's old people, like Cocoon, I remember watching that as a kid. I'm like, why do I want to watch this film about elderly people? And I think now I'm almost the age Wilford Brimley was when he did that. Mm-hmm. That's karma. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's... We're watching old people at an old home fight over the TV. I get it. There's some hook. The the mystery is what's in that cabin. We we see Paul sneak off, go up to a cabin, and then come back and break down during a black and white movie. And and I guess that's a good enough mystery. I just wish, let's get to it. Like, it's not such a great mystery. Like, ooh, what's what's this mystery cabin that I want to spend a whole lot of time with this bookend here? Yeah, and they don't belabor it. On the page, they kept coming back to it. It was hundreds of pages. And as Arnie implied... It was, uh, there was an orderly who was out to expose uh, what was going on and was beating up on the Tom Hanks character. And uh, you could have retained that. It would have been a different movie. If it had been Tom Hanks, I mean, you're going to know this anyway, but you would really be focused on the fact that he's incredibly old. I think doing it this way, you don't quite realize how old Dab Greer is. You're probably not doing the math and saying that this is a modern-day nursing home and that the story he's telling of middle-aged Tom Hanks in 1935 means that, yeah, he's a lot older than anybody else in this establishment. Other than them watching Jerry Springer, this could have been (laughs) the 80s also. You know, it really has a timeless feel even in the nursing home, except again for what they're watching on television. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he has a friend in the nursing home that he's going to recite this story to. We're told it's a story that happened 60 years ago. Elaine's going to hear why he was moved to tears uh, watching Top Hat with Fred Astaire. And suddenly we're back at a prison. Uh, Not unlike Shawshank, but this one in Louisiana. And I want to say, like, I'll just go ahead and use the words, the magical Negro sort of conceit was an invention of Frank Darabont in Shawshank Redemption. When you read Shawshank Redemption as King wrote it, the character that helps the Tim Robbins deal with the plight of being incarcerated was an Irishman. It was Frank Darabont that said Morgan Freeman is magical and sort of created this template that, again, there have been so many movies to jump on the idea of black people having magical powers that help and make white people's lives better. This movie looks like the most magical Negro story yet. This or Bagger Vance, I guess. (laughs) It's not just movies. I mean, let's look at Stephen King's own history. Remember Mother Abigail in The Stand, a magical black woman. There was the magical Negro in The Shining. That was straight out of the prose. That was not Kubrick's casting. King 
has fallen trap to the magical Negro stereotype many a times, and even in the mid-90s, he had not outgrown it, and even in 99, I don't think you could make this movie this way today. I think that... No, th- there's no way. Because you you talk about Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman's character, you could call him magical. He's resourceful. He's definitely magical. John Coffey's literally magic. Okay, fair. Yes. All right. Yes. He doesn't, yes, make things come back from the dead, Morgan Freeman. But later he would go on and play God and stuff like that. I feel like it's in his repertoire. And certainly you mentioned Bagger Vance. Like, who wants to see that movie? Magical golf caddy Will Smith? (laughs) No. No, thank you. Helping Matt Damon. So what is the offense? I want to just break this down. Like, because on one hand you could say, oh, this is a reverence for African Americans. And yet it also sort of depersonalizes them. They're not people. They're these sort of just tropey non-people. What I read up, I read up on this a little bit, and what it seems to be, the big offense is, it's written by white screenwriters that don't know anything about black people, so they, they make them magical to cover their own ignorance, because they can't actually look at their personality and know the history that they've gone through. They just sort of wave their hands and say, voila. And I'm kind of trying to focus on the technical aspects of this film, because when we get into this story, who boy, like, yeah, Trying to get into the the racial politics of the Green Mile is muddy, and you're right, Arnie, I don't think this would get made today. Well, I mean, but it is a story set in 1935, and as we start here in the prison, we're seeing, it's right on display. Look at this chain gang. All the guards are white, all the people in pinstripes are black, and they're in the fields. And so you really get a slavery feeling to all of this as a car drives by that's uh, got something so heavy in the backseat, like it's it's crushing the axle. And we'll find out that this is the new prisoner, the new Jesus Christ, John Coffey. I do want to ask, what was the budget of this compared to Shawshank? Because that like felt like a huge whole prison. And I know here they're just focusing on this little green mile, just this one part. But this feels like such a smaller movie because of that, even though, yeah, when Michael Clark Duncan walks in, very big man. But it feels smaller, maybe more intimate. And that's not a special effect, right? That's not a special effect. He is literally just that size. I was wondering that. Did he stand on a box? Let me answer these questions in order. Shawshank was budgeted at $25 million. This was budgeted at $60 million. Yeah. Wow. Okay. A lot of this was created in soundstage and, you know, utilized to recreate King's words. So this is a more expensive film. But yeah, it also a somewhat claustrophobic film. And no, Michael Clark Duncan is not this big. He, in fact, was turned down for the role A because he couldn't act. His only acting role had been Armageddon. Armageddon, yes. <laughs> okay. But he and Friday? I guess he worked as a bodyguard for a lot of celebrities before he was an actor, so he must have been on the set. He has an uncredited appearance in Friday, but really his only work had been Armageddon. And Bruce Willis called Frank Darabont and said, I hear you're doing Green Mile. I have your John Coffey here. But they had to get Michael Clark Duncan in with some acting coaches in order to get him to play the part. And they were looking at other people. Apparently, uh, Shaquille O'Neal was up for the role. (laughs) 
Kazam! Right off of Steel. <laughs> yeah, Kazam and Steel, who wouldn't want to hire him? But he would be the right height. They actually had Michael Clark Duncan walking on boxes everywhere so that he was towering above. They added about nine inches to his height through special effects. I thought so, because David Morris is a very big man, and Michael Clark Duncan's towering over him. Like, David Morris is coming up to his shoulders in this. I don't know if Michael Clark Duncan, if I've seen too much of his work, he looked very massive as Kingpin in the Daredevil movie, but again, I, I have no way. I think he's always playing the big guy. Armageddon, he's the big guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, he does a lot of like animation voice acting as well. So I, again, they emphasize that he's this massive guy. But okay, so this is a special effect. But the greatest revenge is success, and Michael Clark Duncan did get a Best Supporting Actor nomination out of this. He was the only actor to be nominated. So, you know, I don't think he had a prayer winning. Uh, not only are the racial politics uncomfortable, but he was up against Tom Cruise and Magnolia and the actual winner, Michael Caine, for Cider House Rules. Oh, yeah. I mean, this had a number of nominations, as you mentioned. Best Picture, too. It didn't win, but... Yeah, it wasn't going to. Again, I think it was like the fifth slot. It, it didn't feel like this was beloved in the same way as Shawshank. Call it what it was. But, again, happy for a guy who, again, they were afraid to cast because he couldn't act, and he walks away with nominations. That's a nice thing. Yeah, and he's very believable. He gets a great entrance here where they don't show his head because he's just so huge. You think he's going to be menacing. You think he's going to be dangerous, and he's this teddy bear, you know? He calls Tom Hanks boss and can barely speak. Right. So this is like instantaneously. This is my problem with hearing the novel as well is like we know instantly he didn't do this crime. That we'll see Tom Hanks be handed a file and get a big flashback and we'll have this man implicated at the scene of murdering two little girls petting their blood streaked blonde hair. There's no way. No one is ever, ever, ever for a second going to believe that he's the killer. Yeah, I understand in 1935 they're just going to assume he's guilty. Mostly because for racial right. reasons. Like, I understand their logic, but yes, as a modern audience. In 1999, everyone is going to assume correct. he's an innocent man, wrongly yes. convicted, and this is the story about how we free him. Yes. That's what I would assume. That's what I'm betting, which is why I get surprised by the end. Yeah, and we're introduced to a couple other people here on Death Row. In the book, Stephen King has the pages to tell us why they're all on Death Row, what murders they've committed these are not good people on death row. You have murderers. And while John Coffey may be wrongly convicted here, it seems like just about everyone on death row is really nice. And they're not going to go into what their crimes were. We're supposed to really sympathize with all of these people being executed. I don't know that in real life I'm as sympathetic with those who commit murder. I mean, I think this movie is trying to call on maybe the efficacy of the death penalty. That's probably a pretty obvious point it's trying to make. So part of that, I don't know if it's humanizing them, but it's showing them as people. And yes, people could do something horrendous in their life and and change when I don't know how long they're spending on death row in this film 1935 you probably didn't spend a lot of time on death row like you do today where you probably die of old age before you're ever executed but if that was the point of this movie which maybe it is about how we treat our prisoners and all that then yeah I would have needed that expansion of who these characters are what did they do why have those who have maybe had a change of heart had that well I don't think they're the villain honestly until later I think that they're kooks their characters were to quote unquote like everyone that's in the cells and we're not to like Percy 
who is the guard that is, you know, crowing dead man walking as he's bringing coffee into a cell, beating him with his baton. And we'll see that when he's kicked out of the place, when Tom Hanks's Paul says, you know, we don't need you right now. He's going to go and take that billy club and break the hands of another inmate. I think this movie was cast really well overall. I think Michael Clark Duncan does a great job. But when I was reading the book, in my head, I had cast Percy Wetmore as Sam Rockwell because he's this kind of prissy guy who's constantly saying my uncle is somebody who's in the government and I can get you all in trouble. And I do think that you would have had a better Percy with Sam Rockwell. A lot of people could play Wild Bill. Doug Hutchinson, he's a pretty good Percy, but I think if you'd put Sam Rockwell in that role, it would have done so much better. I don't know. He, he's Weasley to me. He's got that greasy hair. He, he's got the look. He, he's got the delivery with, with, with his lines that, yeah, this is a grease ball. I don't want to hang out with this guy. He's only out for himself. I think whoever this actor is, I don't know who he is, but he does a good job here. Right. If we knew what this man had done, this Cajun inmate Dell, then maybe we might think that Percy was somewhat in the right to abuse him. Probably not, but we'd have more justification. But because all of these inmates' backstories are not the issue, it makes us hate him instantly and often. And, you you know, you can see even the guards. Like, later the warden will come down and say, look, you gotta play ball. He knows the governor, but hopefully he's going to transfer. He's waiting to see a convict, you know, I think the phrase is, cook up close. And then once he's seen somebody go into the electric chair, he'll probably move on. That's the hope anyway. Even in the book, I feel like the other guards are really just not very well written. They're not well-defined characters, and I think that really is amplified on screen. I mean, you mentioned David Morse, Jacob, playing brutal here. Yeah, why is he brutal? He's a nice guy in this. It's ironic, and that that was emphasized on the page that I don't think it was here. No, it's not. His name's Brutus, and they all call him Brutal because he looks like he would be scary. He's tall and imposing, but he's actually a sweetheart and never does anything wrong. They're apostles. That's what I would argue. They're not here as characters. They're literally the apostles and witnesses for this second coming. But again, they, they try to fool us. I mean, we have one of them, Tara Wellinger, hand... Paul, the report, here's what he's done. And we go back to, we actually got a a little moment right before the credits of like a mob with pitchforks and rifles running through a field, finding a torn dress, finding a doll. We will now have uh, the story confirmed, at least the official story of why Coffee is convicted and on death row is because there were two little girls that were playing on a porch Somebody took them, left a trail of blood, and when the mob caught up with them, they found coffee crying, saying, and God knows they repeated this endlessly, as if you couldn't figure out what he was really implying, because I know that he's got magical powers. (laughs) I couldn't help it. I tried to take it back, but it was too late. You're saying they say these lines a lot in the book. I feel like they they say them a lot in the movie, too. Yeah, nothing compared to the book. Again, I'm not kidding when I say 70, 80 times. (laughs) 
And it became a running joke. I would actually be laughing in tears when they would say it, like at certain parts, because I'm like, here it comes. But yes, what it sounds like to, you know, the untrained ear is he couldn't help the impulse of killing little girls because. You know, that's who he is, or at least that's what this mob would conclude about a large, frightening black man in 1935. But what he's going to say, and what becomes pretty obvious, is he has magical powers to bring people back to life, but he couldn't help them in this circumstance because it was too late. And in this flashback, just to call out William Sadler, everybody's best character actor playing the father of these two girls here, that guy is in absolutely everything, and here he is. Including Shawshank. Yep. Naked Kung Fu guy from Die Hard 2 is what I mostly think of him as. Yes. Death from Bill and Ted. Yeah. Yeah. So you get it. You know, again, the way that I think of 1935 is that it has unjust racial politics. So when you show me a literal mob of pitchfork waving white people in overalls, and they're going to draw this conclusion, we just know, right? And so that this, our indignity is up, and we are hoping against hope that this is a you know, like a John Grisham story where not Stephen King, we will have somebody and Atticus Finch is going to get him off death row. And instead of Atticus Finch, we get Mr. Jingles because this movie is going to meander as much as the prose did. This is a three hour movie. And I swear to God, each half hour feels like it's just one of those books, this focusing on a different character and even though john coffee is here in e-block we're gonna forget about john coffee for a while we're gonna focus on delacroix and his magical mouse mr jingles i'll say turning this film off what sticks with me is not john coffee it is dell and mr jingles like they kind of steal the movie for me that cute little mouse doing those tricks to be fair you did have a pet squirrel yes and i have rats and mice now okay so there's a bias <laughs> mm. uh, i don't actually like the mice i do like the rats they're much more personable our mice are not this trained <laughs> yeah so how connected is this with the rest of it because it seems like something else magical right here's maybe it's not supernatural but this is a mouse that nobody can catch it runs underneath the doorway of a padded cell and when they go in and run through all the it's the padded cell is not used they just stuff it full of unused furniture but when they clear it all out they can never find this critter I will say, as much as I like Mr. Jingles, I don't understand all this time spent. Like, it's one mouse. <laughs> They're worried about the padding and the padded cell that they don't even use. Like, we're going to unpack that cell, then repack it, and then unpack it, and pack it again. All for one mouse. Like, I understand if they think there's an investation, but it's just one mouse. Yeah, I was thinking a lot of uh, Mice and Men. You know, they have a big guy, Lenny, who takes care of mice. And I, I keep thinking the mouse is going to become friends with coffee. Right? Like that because everyone has considered him simpleton, they're not going to understand that he has this, you know, he's in touch with nature and that the mouse will come to him. That he ends up going to this other guy, this Cajun, is kind of a surprise. And if that were the case, you might as well already have this guy have the pet mouse. It would just speed things along if he had been taking care of the mouse his whole time there, already had trained it. And we could, you know, not spend so much time with the guards throwing Nilla wafers at the thing. <laughs> and the point is the mouse is going to get killed. The point is that Percy, the guard everyone hates, is going to stamp on it and coffee's going to bring it back to life. Just get to that. Everything else we do with the mouse is, it's a slow buildup. And I think I'm hearing 
from everyone uh, some impatience. It's the problem with being too faithful to King's prose. The way King writes it, keep in mind he wasn't entirely sure where he was going, and he had already published book one by the time he's working on the next book, so he can't go back and just insert the mouse. But Darabont, he could have abridged, and whatever I think of this movie, I think he overindulges, much like King does in his own prose, Darabont overindulged with this movie's three-hour runtime. 100% agree. I do want to say, though, I don't feel bored. Like, there's enough interesting things, again, going on, like this mouse or Dell, I like him, and that I'm more intrigued. Like, where is this going to go? I kind of like some of these characters. I kind of like their dilemmas, their stories. So I, I'm going along with the ride, but yeah, I do feel the time. But I do want to say it's not one of those instances where I'm just, like, bored and, like, just get on with it. Like, there's enough likable characters that I find moments that I enjoy. I'll agree I'm not bored at all during this. I do wish that I hadn't read the book right before seeing the movie, though, because it is such a straight adaptation. <laughs> and then watching the movie again with commentary, I feel like I've been wading through molasses with this. It just, it moves so deliberately. It does. That I become impatient, but I'm not bored. And while I definitely think this movie could be tightened up, I don't think that its runtime is fatal to it. Yeah, that's what I would say. I would make choices to tighten it up because I feel like I would want to bring ideas to a point. And by not bringing certain ideas to the point, I'll just go ahead and say I feel like the Green Mile is mysterious. I'm not exactly sure what the whole point of all of this is going to be. And the point of tightening it up is so that you would understand my interpretation of this material. By Darabont saying I'm keeping it all in and doing it basically as King did, I agree. It's in some ways a creative white flag that says I'm not making artistic choices. I'm just going to create a good-looking, old-fashioned epic. I have that problem with the plot summary is what is the arc what is the plot? This is almost in a TV episodic way, the happenings on Cell Block E, but it's not like I feel Tom Hanks' character really goes through a lot of changes. He's a good guy at the beginning and a good guy at the end. I don't feel like John Coffey changes at all in this film. And so what is the plot? I even left out Dell's execution subplot in my plot summary because... There's just a lot of subplots that weave together into a narrative, but this is not a plot-driven story. For me, when you're going to go three hours long in a film, you're making a statement like, I have something to say about this. This is epic. It could be literally an epic, like, by the expanse or just, like, by what you're trying to tell. It's, it's just this epic journey, like, really important because you're taking three hours of my time. And, yeah, I've got a lot of questions like you, Arnie. Who is the main character? What does Tom Hanks go through in this movie? Like, I don't know if it earns that three-hour runtime. Well, here's the thing. He's an apostle to a passion, right? We have a Jesus Christ that's going to come and be martyred for our sins. I think that part is... Pretty obvious, right? We can tell that that religious play pageant plays out in this 1935 environment. In the last place you expect to see Jesus, this is where that story is going to be retold. I mean, unless you've read the Bible, Jesus was always getting in legal trouble. Well, I mean, okay. And I don't know enough to be like, who was Paul? Why we're following Paul's version versus somebody else's? Uh, I'm not a student of uh, the Bible. I can't tell you. But it feels like that's the thing to keep in mind. 
And so I'm always hyper aware, even though he's not always the focus, he is a supporting player, that John Coffey, it is his story. But he's so hardly in this. He's barely in this. <laughs> well, I mean, but his being there is is the story. Without him, take him out of the movie, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't begin to know what this story is about. He is the engine that, that creates it all. Yeah, I mean, the story starts with him arriving in prison, and it ends with him leaving prison, dead. So you've got that point there, and he is a catalyst, but he, unlike Jesus, I don't feel like he's our main character. <laughs> well, I, I mean main character in the sense that he's the important character. Obviously, the main character is Paul, and how he's going to interpret, you know, this is his testament of what happened to Jesus. And yeah, there are other subplots here as well. He's got the urinary infection. That's a very surprising subdevelopment. We have scenes with him and his wife. I thought for sure, for sure that in adapting this, you would give him an illness that isn't a UTI. Why? I thought for <laughs> sure you would give him something more visible to be healed. Something where you're not grabbing his crotch to fix it. I mean, yeah, if you... If you're wanting to have the big healing moment, a man grabbing another dude's balls, especially in the 90s, like, come on, come on. Like, let's just be real here. Like, people are going to have a hard time taking that seriously. I think it's done as comedy. I mean, that's the whole point is that we want to give people a little bit of funny. And, you know, from his very early scenes, when we're actually seeing Paul as Tom Hanks and not the old man, like we see him at the toilet, you know, trying to pee, wincing in pain. He'll have nights where he runs out to try and get to the outhouse and not making it having to pee on the firewood and and all of this stuff is humor i mean let's just call it what it is it's bathroom humor to make us laugh and god knows stephen king loves toilet humor yeah but when jesus is healing the blind he's like not teabagging him at the same time for humor that, <laughs> that that's what i'm saying if you're telling me this is the savior i don't know it, it's a weird choice oh my god you now just have given me <laughs> The version of the Bible, if it was done by okay. <laughs> Seth Rogen and James Franco teabagging Jesus. But again, you're laughing, so I think it's working. I think, yes, it's totally surprising. It's shocking to modern sensibilities. The tough thing about setting a movie so far into the past is, uh, you know, we culturally don't connect necessarily with with the cultural norms of that time so that they can still get under modern day 1999 audiences yeah it's a shocking moment uh when we see this big guy grab tom hanks by the balls and yeah take away his uh, uti i'll tell you what i would cut there is one too many executions and I felt that even in the book. Why do we have Arlen Bitterbuck? Oh, you've got to have him. No, you don't. You really don't. Because you have to show us a normal execution before you show us the abnormal execution. Before everything goes wrong with Delacroix, we have to see what a standard execution looks like. Mm -hmm. And that is the entire reason we have Bitterbuck. No, no. We could just have Harry Dean Stanton showing the new guys how it's done. Like, that's the fun of it, is that we have Harry, who is just the janitor, but agrees to be the, uh, when they're rehearsing this thing, he agrees to walk the mile and overplay it and gets them laughing. And, and we actually see Paul stopping that because he's like, when it's real, you don't want to be laughing. So, like, let's try to treat this with some seriousness so that we don't ruin the moment when it comes. 
You could just have them rehearse it. I'm not convinced that we needed to see Graham Greene die. That the Indian dies, I'm looking for metaphor. I'm looking for, is this saying something about the politics of the day? Uh, maybe. America and the frontier, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but it's so thin that, again, we, we don't know Arlen. And on the page, he was a murderer and rapist. So, uh, again, it's not like everyone here is innocent. I agree with you, Stuart. As I'm watching this, what would I edit? Show the rehearsal for Dell and then have it all go wrong when they actually do the execution. You don't need bitter buck here. I agree. Yeah. I still think you got to show one normal execution and Bitterbuck doesn't take a whole lot of time to get there. He's Graham Greene, barely has any lines. We're going to go through two whole rehearsals because of this. Yeah. We go through Bitterbuck's rehearsal and then Dell's rehearsal. Yeah. And all of this, what's important about this is that it gets Percy talking with Paul. That Paul is like, look, we all hate you. We're all going to beat you up, whatever your connections are, if you don't. You straighten up and stop acting like a jerk. And they make this pact that, yes, as Paul predicted, this kid is here to see death. And on the page, it's even more clear that he just has a morbid curiosity. I think it comes off in this movie like he really has a grudge against Dell and wants to be the one to hurt Dell. But on the page, it's more like, oh, this is the kid that tortures dogs and, you know, pulls wings off butterflies and all. Just the abnormal, death-obsessed kid who is only here. Again, he could be working for the governor, but he's working death row because he wants to watch a human being die violently. He does have something specifically against Dell, though, in the book, and it is a little bit downplayed here because the first time we're introduced to Percy and Dell, Percy's already beating on Dell. But it's almost like he takes a sadistic glee in the book being nice to Dell because he knows he's going to be the one to cause Dell's ultimate death. And so there is that bit of a grudge there. I think he wanted to kill anyone, but I think he's especially happy to be killing Dell. Mm -hmm. And again, that what we will see is, first of all, Arlen, by dying, clears up a cell. I think that that enables them to take on a new prisoner. And thus we have Sam Rockwell blowing in, not as Percy as you wanted, but as this prisoner Wild Bill Wharton. It's nice to have a prisoner to hate, right? I mean, with all these saints on death row, it's good to see <laughs> one that's there that's going to piss on the guards and spit moon pies in their face and just be an asshole. I like his intro. He's kind of comatose. We think they he's been drugged up, but it's all an act. The guards didn't even bother asking what he was on. And so, yeah, and this is where we see, again, Coffee has premonitions. He, he's trying to talk to Paul and warn him that something's going to go wrong when Wild Bill is brought in. But, you know, he's too busy going to that phone to answer it. I thought he was trying to heal Paul and Paul was waiting for the guard. No, because he's like, he's mouthing careful as they're bringing him in. So it really felt like that he knew what was going to happen. Oh, I didn't take it that at all. But again, maybe that's colored by reading the book. In the book, he specifically is trying to heal the UTI. That was the reading I got too. Yeah, the fact though that he's saying careful as they're bringing him in, it, it feels like he knew something was up. Yeah, maybe. Again, this is movie interpretation versus what I read. I just assumed they were doing what the book did. Either way, yes, this is the moment where we see Tom Hanks wanting to intervene, getting kicked in the balls by Wild Bill. He's already in pain, falling to the green mile floor at this point. And we also see that Percy, as much as he likes to wield that billy club at, at the weak ones, when he's actually confronted with someone that is, you know, young and dangerous... 
he clams up. He doesn't get involved at all. He makes Brutal be the one to, you know, save Dean, who's in a chokehold. And and again, just, I don't think there's ever one scene where we don't have it confirmed that Percy is absolutely awful at this, and we just <laughs> hate, hate, hate him. No, he's like Clancy Brown and Shawshank. Nothing redeemable about him. Yeah, no redeeming. And, and that's, again, I guess just a characteristic of King writing that I will always bristle at. I hate the way that he creates Black Hat white hat kind of characters oh he's done that since salem's lot you know at at the very least i think carrie had some nice shades of gray but then again her bullies didn't but here i said i wanted sam rockwell as percy i stand by that but sam rockwell had a great winter of 1999 between galaxy quest and this he is just stealing the movies with his minor roles i love him as wild bill he is so much energy on screen charlie's angels i think that was the next year But yeah, there's tension now because we have someone that's really dangerous. And that is, you know, again, always baiting them. Uh, They're having to actually use that padded cell because, yeah, he just finds ways to pee on people's shoes and threaten them. And at one point, he's going to choke Percy because he's not paying attention. Again, uh, Sam Rockwell brings an element of, yes, what might feel like the Shawshank, everyone in here is a eunuch and a sweet soul that's innocent, now we have someone that is just unquestionably bad. I didn't guess the surprise. I will say that in hearing the book, I never guessed that he was the actual killer of the two girls. Jacob, did you know? Yes. I I, I thought (laughs) it was an obvious twist. Okay. And I felt while reading the book, I'm like, it would be way too on the nose to have one of the (laughs) other people in here be the killer. And yet, It felt like something Stephen King would do is we have to know who the other killer is. And maybe my reading of the book was influenced by me vaguely remembering seeing this 23 years ago. But while reading the book, I'm like, yeah, somebody else on death row did it. And it was probably Wild Bill. I mean, there is something pretty similar in Shawshank where one of the prisoners knew another prisoner that actually did the murders. And, you know, the guards have got to kill them all to cover it up to keep Andy there. But like, it just felt very similar. So I'm like, oh, I, I bet he's a guilty guy. I think I got distracted because the book spends so much more time than this movie is with Paul delving into like coffee the mystery of him like we'll see it once he gets healed you know they have that moment grab me by my balls and you spit out the black flies and i feel good it seems like the character very quickly comes to the idea that he is innocent now and i have to find out why he was ever convicted in the book it really is almost like a a murder mystery in that they're going to spend a lot more time, you know, vetting that and talking to witnesses and, and going through the case files. That's where I say this movie gets real muddy with its its message and its racial politics. It's like, Paul should be doing everything he can now to get coffee free. Like, it's obvious something is up and that never seems to be on his mind. He, he's going to use him for his healing later on, but right. freeing him? I don't know if that ever crosses his mind. Till the very end. Right. Well, I mean, I can understand after the UTI, you're not, okay, you cleared up my pipes. I can screw my (laughs) wife, but I'm not going to necessarily say that, you know, you're innocent. You just see that it's curious. He goes home. He sleeps with Jan four times, like the first time they have, you know, had sex that way since they were teenagers. A funny moment. And then he's off to go talk to the defense lawyer. What about this case? Why did he get convicted? And even Gary Sinise doing his time 
Tom Hanks film number three and Stephen King film number two is like, yeah, he, it's an open and shut case. This guy was found with the bodies. He said what he said. And yeah, I just think that you, you don't question the obvious. He's a black guy. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's really what he's saying. He's a black guy found with white girls and he's big and scary and muscular. He is a beast that needs to be put down, a mongrel dog. And Gary Sinise does really well here. I think he does well in just about everything. Maybe not that Philip K. Dick movie you guys had to review <laughs> with him that I watched, but mostly he's good. And seeing Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump here together again did not distract me. I didn't even think about it till I was thinking about after the movie. I didn't put that together. Oh, it was the first thing I thought of when I saw him together. <laughs> now, they had done Apollo 13 as well. True. I don't think of that one as much, though, as Forrest Gump. One is more impactful. But again, when your own lawyer is like, yeah, I didn't really defend him because I didn't think he was worthy. You know, like I, he makes this comparison that my son was bit by the family dog. You don't question why. I don't need to know why Coffee killed those girls. Motive is not my interest. He's a dog. And sometimes dogs just lose it and bite children. And that lack of humanity, his inability to see the humanity in coffee is the indignity that we should all feel. And it's because he's black. He's like a Negro is like a mongrel dog. It's specific racism coming out here in a subtle way. He's not like he says the N word. That's subtle? <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, it's pretty evident. I mean, maybe 1935 subtle. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's coded, right? Like, you know, we all can see. It's very loud and clear, but it's dog whistling, right? We know what is being done here. And yes, that's, again, they, they don't see coffee as a human being. Would be the thing to get mad about, except the movie doesn't see coffee no. as a human being. Coffee isn't human. I don't think. I, I want to debate this. Is coffee just a mortal soul that is operating through like the hand of God? Does he have the shining or is he Jesus Christ? My reading of it is that he is a Stephen King supernatural being. He is a mortal person who has one specific power, you know, Charlie could start fires, Carrie could move things, Danny could speak with the ghosts, and John Coffey can heal people. Yes, he has the same initials as Jesus, but I don't see him as Jesus resurrected. I mean, I don't mean exactly literally, but my point is he seems to have no past. No one can identify where he comes from. They just consider him a, you know, a depression, you know, tramp, just wandering the rails looking for work as so many were at that time and they don't know his background and I, again does he have one when he later he talks he's like i don't even know why i know the things i know and do the things i do he seems to be a simpleton and so my question is the thing that i wonder is is the hand of god working through him or is he all magic I take it that he's all magic, that he is the hand of God. Like, yeah, the fact that he doesn't really seem to know who he is, that he just shows up and, yeah, he's there to heal. They call him a force of nature, like, at one point in the film, and that's how I feel about him, that he is this godly manifestation, an angel, something like that, but not a human being with the shining or, or some other Stephen King magical power. I mean, it felt to me like Lenny, again, of Mice and Men, and, and, and that, like, there was something very human about him, and and yet, where this goes, uh, yeah, I, it's a frustration that I have. I don't necessarily like the ambiguity of not understanding the lack of humanity. Did he just, like, 
like come down in a ball of light? Like, is that what we're to understand? That would be my interpretation. My belief of it from reading the book is that he was a tramp, one who was very addled mentally. He did not have the ability even to remember something as simple as who gave him a sandwich that he was carrying for lunch. And so he doesn't remember much about himself, but my thinking is he went place to place just eking out a meager existence and healing people along the way because that's his instinct of what to do. I don't think he was manifested where those two girls had been raped and killed by Wild Bill and then killed, you know, a short time later. Okay. Again, it's. I wish it were a little bit more detailed in that information. I'd like to know that because I feel like that's the story. Again, I would argue he's the character that everything is hinging on. The more you can give of, of his plight. And again, I think it's really important. It's wrong to exoticize and not give him a personal trait. You know, like, like I want to believe that he's a human being and to... The way that this movie, unfortunately, too often, again, he's trying to make other people feel better. Oh, I don't even want to live. Don't feel bad about putting me to death. Like, the where this character goes, it's kind of infuriating. Stephen King, I feel, just lacks gray characters. You talked about that a little bit, Stuart. I feel like that's something from the beginning, especially his characters like Paul Edgecombe, who are just these nice blue-collar guys that seem to be the heroes of every Stephen King story. And I do wish that there was more given to John Coffey. It's not his story, though. Especially in the prose, it's definitely Edgecombe's story. Not that he has a huge arc in it, but it is his story. Right. But you've already said he's a non-character. So actually, it is the story of this nice character experiencing the story of this messiah. Well, and I think this is part of the criticism that a work of art might get for having the magical black person in it is because the criticism is they're not a person. They are magic, but like black people, they have their own culture and all that. Like they're not treated as human beings like the white characters. I know a lot about Paul. I I know a bit about Brutal, like, uh, you know, but what do I know about John Coffey? Only that he supposedly killed two girls and he has magic powers. Like, I don't know who he is as a person, but he's treated as this great magnificent thing and that's his work. Not that he's a human being. Right. Yeah. And yes, I definitely feel like once this gets recognized, like uh, basically Paul walks away kind of offended by Gary Sinise, but still... I don't think that he really makes the connection fully. I don't think all the guards make the full connection that they're dealing with something, a vessel of God, until he saves Mr. Jingles, right? Like, that's the thing that turns it from a convict we like to, oh my God, we're killing Christ. And that is a pretty brutal scene. Like, none of us like Percy anyway at this point. I knew this was coming up and I was watching this with my younger daughter and I'm like, oh, she loves that Mr. Jingles. Like, it's going to go bad soon. And yeah, it's brutal. Like, that that stomp he does, like, they do not back away from that. Particularly since it's all set up, but basically our emotions are with Dell because it's getting close for him to walk the green mile and what are we going to do with your mouse and the guards are coming up with this obvious lie about we'll take him to Mouseville Circus and he'll play with other mice and do his little spool tricks for children (laughs) for pennies just like how my parents took my dog to live on a farm where he could run with other dogs and have a big area to play (laughs) right yeah but you think he's making a joke about Disneyland but in 1935 there's not even Snow White yet so Mouseville in Florida is 
I don't know if that's a premonition or or just a, a lucky coincidence. I don't know if you've been on the backwater of Florida roads, but I believe there's a Mouseville tourist <laughs> trap somewhere because there are certainly enough Alligatorville tourist traps. That I could imagine one with a mouse. Yeah, but I, it's, again, it just made me think about Disney. But you know, I guess that's a modern sensibility. The point is, they have convinced this prisoner his mouse is going to be okay, and then splat. Percy comes in and just with a you know thoughtless stomp of his feet, all of those dreams are gone for Dell. But of course, this is the opportunity. This is where Coffee steps in, does the ET trick, cups the dead mouse corpse in his hand, and now it's confirmed by everyone. All the guards see this, except for Percy, and he comes in later and thinks he's been tricked that they switched mice or something. But that yes, that we, you are dealing with a supernatural force. And Darabont, the way he films this, and I think it's a little bit on the page, but I think seeing it drives it home more. It feels like he's drawing a parallel between John Coffey and Resurrection with his mouse, as well as the termination or killing in the electric chair. Because when they get the electric chair ready... All the light bulbs get brighter. They say roll on one, which brings in the juice. All the lights shine really bright. Well, while Coffee is healing this mouse, all the lights in the prison start shining really bright. And I just thought it was shorthand for magic. Magic is going on because the lights are getting brighter. It is, but I also agree with Arnie that it's, you know, it's telling that these men, likable though they are, their job is to put people to death. And here they are confronting someone who does the opposite. I guess it does take a little bit out of him. He coughs and something comes out of his throat. And he gets tired afterwards. He always has to take a nap. Yeah. Well, later we'll realize that it's very hard on him to do this, that he's so exhausted by the cruelty of the world and trying to fix it that he's ready to give up. Again, I don't know. Was Jesus suicidal? I don't see it that way exactly. But again, this is Jesus healing the lepers. This is Jesus doing miracles. And he's got a following. He's got his apostles now. And he's the one that is comforting this mouse when they take Dell to be executed. And this is probably the scene I remember most is Dell's execution. Like, I was waiting for this to happen. You gotta wait a long time. You gotta wait a long time for everything in this movie. But yeah, Percy is put in charge because if they let him kill someone, he'll leave. He'll take that promotion at the mental hospital, go away. And of course, because he's so cruel, <laughs> he's such a, where's that, the blackest of hats, he's not gonna wet that sponge to conduct the electricity to Dell's brain. Mm -hmm. After telling him there's no Mouseville. Oh, that was cruel. Like, yeah. Terrible, terrible person. Just cruel and cruel. And why? Cause, I don't know. He might do it to anybody, but specifically because Dell laughed at him when he pissed himself. When there yes. was that moment of Wild Bill choking him, Dell, quite frankly, uh, just as a response to a bully, because Percy had tripped him and hit him and done terrible things to him this whole time, he finally got to laugh at the prison guard that was mean to him. Well, the prison guard is thin-skinned and won't let that stand. And so the way that it really plays in the movie, more so than even on the page, is that he wants this guy to burn alive. Is this scene too over the top for this film? Like, it goes hard. I didn't remember it going this hard when I saw it, but it was a standout scene because, yeah, th th this feels like the Stephen King moment. If you want that horror, is seeing Dell burned alive and they just got to keep that electricity going because I guess if they turned it off, the heart's still beating. There were some 
bits that they did leave on the cutting room floor because they thought it would be too harsh for this movie. Harsher than his head bursting on fire? Which actually wasn't supposed to happen. The dummy just burst on fire and they're like, oh, that's great. Let's use that. (laughs) I'm going to argue I think you need this and I wish there was even more. I mean, again, when you hear Stephen King talk about the genesis of this story, he wanted to explore how crazy it is that this is the way that we execute people. I mean, we don't do this anymore. Even in states where we do put people down, we would never be this cruel that, you know, he wanted to explore the evil of old Sparky, as he put it. So again, this is the moment that really shows you. I wish they lingered. I mean, I feel like in the book, you know, they take us time to walk down that green mile and to walk through the doorway. And like, if you watch Dead Men Walking with Sean Penn, there is just a lump in your stomach watching him near his end that I feel like this movie could spend some more time doing. I know it's got a lot of things on its plate and I know it's being directed by a guy who's kind of sentimental when I'm wanting something a little bit more horrific, but I I like that it's brutal and I would actually advocate more of this, please. I just think that it doesn't match the tone of the rest of the film. I'll agree with Jacob because while this is Percy's ultimate sin, he's been an asshole this whole movie, but now He's caused such a painful and horrible death for Dell, a character who, of course, we like because he didn't just save the cat. He trained the little mouse to (laughs) push a spool of thread. But it is a remarkably gross scene in the middle of this with the fire and the jerking and everything. I'll tell you this, though. It wakes me up, okay? I gotta say, at this point, this movie is lulling me into some form of hypnosis. Not sleep, but just zoning a little bit. And this is really bringing me back. Yeah, well, I, again, that's I hear you saying it's different from the rest of the movie. What I'm arguing is it doesn't need to be more like the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie needs to be more grim like this. I want a story that is about the horrors of mortality. I'll just go ahead and say it. For me, what makes sense about this story is that if Christ were to come back today, we would condemn him and put him to death. That we're not any better having known the biblical stories and been good people. We're not worthy of him. And the fact that, you know, Paul is going to have to live on walking that green mile, not knowing when he's going to get to the end, putting to death everyone that he loves is a horrifying, sad tragic story that this movie should feel more tragic more of the time to reflect that i I guess is what i'm saying i wish i felt bad more often watching this movie than i do i wish there were less jokes about peeing and you know goofiness mouse jokes i mean maybe dale is a bad guy we don't know his crime i mean obviously he murdered someone so that's probably bad he did yeah he's not innocent i mean uh, that is clear but what i'm saying is if this is if you want more of this yeah then you make this a film about maybe it's not just john coffee that's innocent maybe there's other people and these guards are going through this existential crisis that then at least this movie is about something but yeah you would have to change the whole focus of this film like if you want more of this kind of reflection on putting people to death in our society here's what i want to know mr jingles has been brought back to life and we see in this moment as dell is burning and all of that that he knows he's sad he loved 
Dell, and so he's just going to leave the prison behind. He's going to run behind that door. It's because John Coffey's holding him, and he could transfer those thoughts, those feelings, his power. Like, it's going through him into that mouse. I, I don't know if that mouse is comprehending, like, the execution of Dell, but it feels bad and runs away. That There's something about that he says at the end about his power going into Mr. Jingles. Yeah. Is this the moment where he's given extended life? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's what was specifically said by old Paul at the end. Okay. So when he goes and helps a woman with a brain tumor, she's not going to live to be 237. No, it's only if he passes his power on to you. Which he does to Paul when Paul gets the vision later on, not when it's the UTI is cured. Yeah. Okay. I guess when I heard the story, I was thinking it was that exchange with the UTI that gave him that gift. No. But the movie makes more clear it's showing flashbacks at the very end, which, okay, I guess. Hard to split those hairs. But anyway, the point is, is that, yes, Paul looks like an opportunist and advocating for someone that's not even his own wife. I mean, it's kind of sweet. I mean, yes, he sees a woman in need, but it's the warden's wife and he is going to risk it all for her and do none of the risking for the vessel of God. I hear you guys saying that this is pretty close to the book. I'm wondering if they adapted five out of the six volumes because I do not understand this final act. Like, why are we helping the warden? Like, you have Jesus in a cell and the big climax is sneaking him to go heal some random white dude's wife and then putting him back in the cell to go be put to death. Yeah, I felt like in this movie that really took a leap. In the book, we get inside Paul's head and I feel like King did a pretty good job of basically saying this is Paul and company undergoing some kind of penance because of how badly Dell died the horrificness of Dell's death made them need to redeem themselves through this act by helping some good person live and we'd met the warden's wife early on where there would been times where Paul had gone over there and we met the wife and met more of the warden But the way this movie does it, the first time you're seeing the wife, she's on her deathbed, the warden's mentioned her in passing a couple of times, and then Paul's entire motivation is suspect. I feel like this does come out of nowhere as told in the movie. Yeah, not having read that book, it's a big surprise that this becomes the focus of the film. Well, I mean, it was there all along. From minute 20, we do meet the warden, and he's a nice guy. This has to be the the first and only prison movie I can think of where the warden (laughs) is someone you'd want to help out, where it's like, yes, we got to help this wife of his. Yeah, it's not that Shawshank Warden. He was a bad guy. These are all good prison people. Yeah, and that never happens. Again, like, what is the meaning if the system is condemning an innocent man to death? Usually that is represented by the brutality of the person running the system, right? Like, the warden is the reason why. The fact that the warden is going to know that this man saved his wife and do nothing to intervene. Also, to me... You could read it as a problem, or you could read it as the point. Isn't it something that these white people will take the gift of Jesus and do nothing to save him? Like, is that an irony that is the point of the story? Or is that a head-scratching development in a movie that asks us to feel sentimental a lot of the time? 
yeah, that could be a really good point and, and a really well-crafted film. That is not the Green Mile. Like, if, if that is the point they're trying to make... It might be. It's failing. Like, why introduce these racial politics? It just makes it come off worse. Like, we are just going to use this black man to benefit white people. Like, at least, like, get a line of sick white people to, like, just bring through the prison to have him heal. And maybe they'll go, like, look, maybe this guy is Jesus and we shouldn't kill him. Like, do something more. It is... It's very frustrating, I'll say, because I don't know what... This this movie is saying yes what they're doing is wrong but i'm not convinced that the movie's not aware of that is i guess what i'm saying i don't know if the movie's aware of it or not is what i'm saying <laughs> i don't know either yes we know that we're supposed to be rooting for tom hanks because he's a good guy and yes we've had a few scenes where he and the wife went over to have lunch with the warden and we've seen patricia clarkson fading away starting to babble losing it we don't she's not really a character we don't it's a distant sort of sympathy that we have for her but yes that they conceive of this jailbreak in which they're going to bring coffee to her in the middle of the night and have him eat out her brain tumor before it kills her almost feels like the climax when in fact it's the thing that to me leads to the interesting conundrum how can you accept this gift and then repay it with the death penalty like how can the warden do that and King and Darabont are going to make it real easy they're going to have the conversation where John Coffey's like I'm tired, boss. Okay, yeah, and, and I'm holding that. Well, that is the other huge problem here, yeah. Yeah, I'm holding that because <laughs> that is a total failure. Uh, whatever yes. I think of the whole movie, that they go to that path is like, I see red blood vessels breaking in my head, angering. That is terrible. That is a huge mistake. But I'm trying not to throw everything out and have my Shawshank fit uh, the way that I did when I saw Shawshank. Do we need to talk about this jailbreak? I mean, there's a lot of elements at play. It's kind of suspenseful. They have to drug Wild Bill, and he doesn't stay down. They have to put Percy in the padded cell, and we don't believe that once he's free, he's not going to blab and call the governor and get all these people fired or in jail. I mean, I think the most important part is that Wild Bill, once again, maybe he wasn't faking being drugged this time. Maybe it just kicked in later but this is where John Coffey gets confirmation that Wild Bill is the one who did those murders because he's gonna reach out grab him and I, I guess John Coffey touches someone he could tell everything about you I don't think we're to know that yet I know it and partly because I know the book at this point but all we see is that John Coffey gets a weird looking face and says you're a bad man I'm hearing Jacob you said I was on to this movie I knew that Wild Bill was the killer I don't know that everyone in the audience would be there but maybe yeah maybe not yeah it's too big a coincidence for me to even allow this movie and book, let alone to think most audience members would jump on it. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I don't know. Because I had heard the book before I watched the movie. I knew that this was coming. Everything was following as it were. But yes, there is some kind of, if nothing else, we understand that John Coffey is processing some kind of secret about Wild Bill. And then he has to go to this house where, I mean, can you imagine in 1935, an elderly white man with a shotgun letting this massive black nope. man walk into his wife's bedroom and kiss her? Like, nope. in the book, they kind of made it seem like everyone falls into a trance and just lets John do whatever. But it doesn't play that way 
here. I would have loved that if you have some heavenly light from some unknown source above them, like, shine down. And yeah, they, they go in a trance and he just kind of floats his way to the wife and he, like, yes, then I could buy that magic happen. But this, no, they're just like, hey, let this big black man who's convicted of double murder and rape of children, like, come in and kiss your wife. Mm-hmm. Right. Touch my nearly naked wife and do whatever with her in the bedroom is, I mean, it's an outrageous thing. Yes. I think I was projecting from the book because as he gets closer to the warden, James Cromwell, James Cromwell seems to relax. And so I think they were trying, I mean, Darabont doesn't deviate from the page of Stephen King. I think he was trying to show us that they were being put in a calming trance by John Coffey without doing something as hoary as having a light from God shine down upon them. But I also don't know that it completely translated or sold. Why not play it the other way? Why not have James Cronwell blasting the shotgun and the guards have to hold him down and beat him up or something like that? You want things to get more and more escalating. You want things to be like, oh my God, I can't believe things have gotten this bad. Not like, oh, it'll all be okay. And sure, we're going to allow this to transpire here because, you know, that that's what's needed for the plot. Like, it should come at some consequence. It's relatively easy that they're able to break him out of jail and put him back in. And I feel like you want to scare the audience. You want to make it more frightening and not more comforting. Darabont's instincts so often are to try to wrestle tears out of us or, or coddle us. And I just, why not scare us? What's wrong with that? It's Stephen King. I want to be, I want to find this moment tense. Stephen King is more than one thing, though, and I think that Darabont making homesy, folksy tales is not a bad thing. Not every movie needs to be Dead Man Walking. It is a bad thing in my mind. It's just a bad look. It just, it's stupid. It's what made me despise Shawshank, is how sentimental and ridiculous and black and white it is. Yeah, it's hard for me to go three hours with sentimentality. Like, I need something more. Yeah, and this one's more interesting. I just want to go ahead and say, I'm finding this one way more complex. I'm feeling pulled in a lot more directions than I ever was in Shawshank. And partly that may be just miscalculation. They're hoping we're enchanted by all of this when we're really scratching our head and going, how could you? But that's my reaction in watching them let John come in there, heal her, and then put him back in the cell to die. Yeah, this is where you have a big conversation about what to do and the warden gets involved. And instead, it's going to be John Coffey just going like, no, I'm tired. I'm ready to die. Yeah, I agree with Stuart. In the book, in the movie, everything, this should have ended in at least a jailbreak. The guards should have been willing to risk their careers and things. But it's so pedantic in the book. Well, I have kids, it's the depression, it's hard to find new jobs, we'll go to jail. It just, you've seen a miracle from God, you don't put that miracle in the electric chair. But they're not willing to go to jail for that. Yeah, I agree. Again, is that the point? Because I can celebrate it if the point is, look at these greedy people that are willing to exploit a messiah, but not actually give of themselves to a higher power. I feel pretty comfortable saying that is not the point of this version of the Green Mile, no. It is not getting into those politics. Nor the book. No, these characters are not cynical and greedy in the book. They're 
especially Paul, is just, he's so saintly himself. I mean, they're trying to look saintly here, but they don't look saintly to us because we can see what's going on. Because it is so offensive to think that you could use someone in this way and then literally dispose of them. You're projecting your viewpoint onto me, whereas, yes, I see it as bad, but... I also see it as they saved this woman's life. If they hadn't done the actions they did and taken the risks they did, the warden's wife would have died a horrible death. They saved her life. Right. And again, the fact that a white woman's life has more value than a black man's life in this day and age is something that's not going to go undebated. That's the thing. You have John Coffey be someone who has been, you know, racially discriminated against in American history. Like, it's bringing up all these questions. If you got a white actor to do this, a bunch of white people, like, I don't know if I would be thinking about all this. I'd be thinking about death penalty and the justice of that, but I wouldn't, like, it brings in a whole layer of complication by doing this. I'd also add, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but, like, John Cromwell is old and Patricia Clarkson is not as old as him, but I think she's supposed to be. She's lived most of her life. So, yes, it's sad that she's got a brain tumor and is going to die, but this is a young, vibrant man that, magical powers or not, is innocent of the crimes and being put to death. His life is not less than hers. It's not. No, it's not. And, again... I'm glad that they didn't do some Perry Mason, he's found innocent thing, because I think that would be just too cheap and cheesy. And maybe it is more realistic that in the 1930s, there would be no saving him. Yeah, again, that it could be a strength of this movie if you want to look at the 1930s in a cynical vantage point of, of course, it was only going to go one way. But I will say this, I was very, very surprised that, you know, the point is made as coffee is brought back to his cell, he hasn't coughed up the bugs. Every time he does one of these these healing things, he usually just spits out a whole bunch of whatever, black ooze, and, you know, restores himself. And I think we hear brutal, even, you know, hypothesize, oh, he's trying to die before he goes to the electric chair. He's keeping all the poison inside of him. Oh, no, no, no. It's much better than that. And I love this twist when they free Percy and he becomes the pawn of coffee. Yeah, I wish there was more interaction in this movie between Coffee and Percy. In the book, there is a little bit more. You'd want to talk about repeated lines. He is a bad man. There's another one that Coffee says a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. I, again, I feel like that's said a lot in the movie, too. <laughs> Uh, you don't even know what you're talking about. 12 hours, Jacob. A 12 hour audio recording. And I can't skip over. Or hundreds of pages. Either way you want to go. Yeah, but you can skim pages. Believe me, I skim King. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to read this page. But with the audiobooks, I don't skim. I take notes. I'm highlighting. I'm doing all sorts of things like this. I never skimmed. But you could. Whereas <laughs> I'm trapped by the audio. Unless I'm going to hit the fast forward button. I Yeah, not happening while I'm driving played on that double speed that's what i do <laughs> but back to my point the fact that we never get coffee saying percy is a bad man we never get a lot of interaction between them in the book there's at least a little to explain why coffee would choose percy as his agent of vengeance i mean he stomped on the mouse yeah it's that simple i think it's in the movie it's in the book He's a bully. Yeah, he's a bully. Every every time we see him, he's doing something inhumane and awful, and that he killed Mr. Jingles and Coffee had to bring him back to life would be the reason why you would make him the vessel for taking all that black dust ooze 
flies, whatever it is, the evil spirits, and then just walking over to Wild Bill's cell and unloading your pistol into him. And it's ironic, too, because, again, this guy was always saying he was going to transfer to the mental hospital. Maybe he would have, or maybe he never would have, or maybe they didn't even want him. But now he is actually going to go to the mental hospital because he's insane. For the rest of his life, he's never going to snap out of this trance. Which is something funny in the book, because King talked about how Percy would go there... And you think the way King writes the prose, and because it's being told all in retrospect, the whole six-volume story is first person, too, being told by old Paul. And so you think that he gets the job, and I even wonder sometimes if King wrote himself into a corner and then came up with a clever way out of it by making him a patient at the mental hospital. (laughs) You say clever. I guess if this wasn't three hours, if this was just a hundred minutes, all these cruel ironies would just play better because they feel kind of sophomoric to me. I I was watching this with my daughter, and she's she loved this. She's like, oh, he was gonna work there, and now he's a patient there. That's that's so cool. And I'm just kind of rolling my eyes because three hours... Epic. You're you're getting into real gritty material, and then I don't know, just this silly, cruel irony of, of what happens with Percy. I like it. I'm not going to say I like every flourish, but this irony I do enjoy. It's better than anything I could have imagined for Percy that he has to, you know, do what he says he was going to do, and at the same time, finally use his abuse. In the right way. He would never hurt Wild Bill when he needed to be. And now he's going to kill him. And just want to say, this is what happened to Clancy Brown's character in Shawshank. It it feels like a lot of the same notes. The prison guard (laughs) becomes the prisoner. Mm, Maybe. I I don't even really remember Shawshank that well. It's, It's blotting in my mind. Hazy. So, yes, it's all kind of wrapping up here. And what you're telling me is, up to this point, Paul is mortal. And has just been cleared of whatever was going wrong with it in his urine. But now, because he wants to know why, because he's going to come to coffee and say, why did you do that? Because again, Jesus Christ, I don't think he ever like sent an assassin out. Like this is, <laughs> this is a next level kind of like deviousness. How, what justification do you have for doing this? And, you know, I think that because he sees the flashback, he's made immortal. I don't know. It's a little bit thin, but whatever. Yeah. And in the book, it's clear he's not immortal, but because we do get to see Mr. Jingles die. And if Mr. Jingles can die, then Paul can die. Right. And if Paul really wanted to die, I mean, I don't think that John Coffey has prevented you from jumping out windows, being hit by cars or overdosing on pills. He's not invincible. He's just, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. No, yeah, definitely not. Yes, he's just extended. He's given you more life. And we see this whole thing of like flashback and that the Dederick family had actually hired Wild Bill. I guess they didn't know his reputation to paint a barn red or something like that. And just it never occurred to them that he would be the one to cut through the porch screen, unlock the door, and grab the girls. And admittedly, the girls weren't found in the arms of Wild Bill when they were found dead. They were found in the arms of a guy who can't even come up with a story to defend himself. And who's black, and that's guilt right there in 35. Yeah, even if he wasn't simpleton, even if he could very eloquently create, you know, explain an alibi and all of that, no one wants to believe that story. It's just easier for everyone to convict the big black scary guy. 
And you talk about King and, you know, we all float down here. And, and I said that with it. Like, he comes up with these phrases that maybe they sound cool, but I just, I they never really click with me. And during this whole end monologue, he's like, it's their love that killed them because the sisters went along because... Sam Rockwood will kill the other one if the other didn't. So, like, it was their love. And I'm like, is that the point? Like, our love kills us? I don't know. Like, what what does this mean? (laughs) Yeah, because he does say that happens all the time. Yes! Like, it's just normal. Like, we are dying because of our love in this world. Okay. Because they loved each other. I mean, I don't know if it's clear in the movie, but... It's not, Stuart. <laughs> they were sleeping out in the porch instead of their beds. And because they loved each other, they stayed together. We do have one moment of dialogue. It's actually the first dialogue of the entire movie is that I guess Wild Bill told them, if you love your sister, you know what to do. Something bad will happen if you try to run away. So I guess it's getting to that idea. Maybe maybe he wouldn't have been able to kill both of them. But because one loved the other so much, she wouldn't leave her side. They both died. So love is a bad thing? Well, I mean, in this case, it was used against them. I think that's the point. It's not a bad thing, but evil has a way of taking what we love and punishing us for having that connection. There are more examples of that in the book. One irony that I really do like is that we will find out that much later, Paul and his wife are taking a bus trip and there's an accident. She gets electrocuted. So it's almost like she goes to the electric chair and he has to watch her fry. Yeah, because at the end here, it feels like old Paul is saying this is a curse. Like, he gave Mm -hmm. me this gift of life, which is now a curse, because I've seen everyone die. And again, if this was the story of Jesus, I don't know if hardcore Christians talk about being cursed by the blood of Christ and being redeemed by him. Like, it's just trying to figure out, are we just going for spooky campfire ironies here? Or is there something more that I'm just not getting? What I heard is my punishment for putting down this beautiful man is that I will have to live on and watch everything that I love also be put down. There is a judgment made about him by him going through with this. Now, the movie, again, we want people to feel just like sad about the the moment and, and not hold anything against Tom Hanks. So they just have him like playing top hat for him and getting a meatloaf and being told, oh, don't worry, I'm tired. I want to die. All of that is extremely aggravating to me. Uh, infuriating, <laughs> actually. I, I hate that so much. If there was one change I could, only one change I could make to this movie, it would be to remove that. Tom Hanks, Paul needs to feel absolutely terrible about what he's doing, and nothing Coffee says should get him off that hook. 100% agree. But it kind of does in the book, too. I mean, Coffee does say he's tired of feeling all the pain. No, I know. It's bullshit. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> so I'm just pointing out your complaint comes from the prose, not from Darabont. Change the prose, then. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. You cannot have the condemned person say it's okay that the system condemned him. That is not acceptable. It is not acceptable, and they should feel really bad about it. And it is ironic that, okay, now you can live on. You get to watch your wife die. You get to watch all your guards die. You get to watch your son die, which we never even meet the character. Is that a deleted scene? No. I was so confused at the end when he's like, you probably haven't figured out the math about my son. And I'm like, oh, you had a son? I totally missed that. (laughs) There's just one little moment when they have Barry Pepper, a supporting player from Saving Private Ryan, as he is one of the guards. He's the family man. And what he's told is he's not going to participate in the coffee jailbreak bringer to Melinda because he has 
a wife and, and young children that would be impacted if he were to get caught, whereas everyone else has grown children. And so that was the way that we were supposed to think about Tom Hanks being really too old for it when we go back to 1995 and have old Paul finish the story. And I remember in theaters when Coffee did die, I didn't get choked up. I got a little choked up in Shawshank at the end when the two found each other on the beach and things. But when John Coffey died here, I wasn't moved. I was like, okay, this is how the story is ending. But I didn't have the lump in my throat that a good movie where I'm sad about a character's death can give me. Oh, I'm choked up with anger. Like, I'm choked (laughs) up that he's singing cheek to cheek. And, you know, I'm in heaven and all that. Like, no, no, you do not let them off the hook. That's bullshit. And they're crying. They know what they're doing is terrible. It's an interesting dynamic that you have the Dederick parents actually there being like, burn in hell and I hope it hurts and all of that. And then you have the guards that are actually strapping him in, crying and all of that. Like, you know, they they even try to say, don't focus on their hate, focus on our love. I don't know. Like, uh, that may be true, but also they have, they should all be crying. Like that. Again, I want the end feeling not to be that I witnessed something beautiful. E.T. came and changed, you know, some lives back in 1935, but that I failed God. That's the story of this. God tested me and I dropped the goddamn ball. That's what I see. Yeah, that's what it should be. And the only thing I got out of it is this stupid mouse in the cigar box. (laughs) Don't talk bad about Mr. Jingles. I won't. I mean, he's a cute mouse, but you get what I'm saying. Like, I lost my wife. I lost my son. I lost all my friends, but I got a mouse. That's a good train mouse. Yes. No, I understand. That should hurt. In the book, the mouse dies at this point, too, which is... I know. (laughs) That was weird. But again, like, they also had this cruel character that, like, you thought he was going to kill it. And I don't know. But the book went on too long. A Stephen King book? No. (laughs) Especially one published as six separate books? No way. I don't think you want the last image to be the mouse dropping dead. I think it's right just to leave him breathing in the box. Yeah. (laughs) Voiceover saying that, you know, it will come for us eventually. He looks bad. I mean, we'll say it's not the Mr. Jingles of 1935. He's not pushing that spool around too fast anymore. You can see that age is wearing them down. It's not immortality, but that they are still here in a symbolic mouseville, as it were, in 1995. Again, a sad ending, but not as dark as I would have hoped. You're always wanting it darker, but sometimes you want to go light. Sometimes an audience pleaser is the way to go. Sometimes schmaltz sells. I mean, you're talking like a producer. I'm talking like (laughs) an artist. Like, that's the difference. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. If I had some stock in this, make them all, like, cheering and and make it an hour shorter, too, so we can sell more tickets. Yes. (laughs) So, Jacob Stewart, are you going to push that little spool towards green or red for the Green Mile? Jacob. This is one where I had to focus more on the technical aspects because I I have real problems. Not with the story that they set up, but with the way they all 
close it out. And, and I just, again, I don't know what this movie is saying. Is this about racial politics and, and people being condemned to murder that didn't commit the crime because of the color of their skin? Yeah, that's that's in here, but I don't know if that's what it's about. It's interesting. I was taking some notes, Arnie, when you were talking about the book. You know, you said no good through line, no good climax. And, and I thought you were talking about the movie because those are the notes I had about this. Like, who's <laughs> the main character? What is this movie about? What is the actual plot? Why is this about helping some white woman I've never met at the very end? <laughs> like, it's bizarre, and yet it's well shot. It's well acted. There's characters like Mr. Jingles and Dell. Like, whenever they're having their moments talking about Mouseville, like, I feel emotions. So, like, there is stuff that's right here. I, I didn't have a bad time. It wasn't hard to get through this three-hour film, but for a three-hour film, you just got to go harder. Like, you can't just do cruel ironies for your ending that you'd hear in a campfire story. That That is just my confusion with this film. And it, people like this. Like, I bring this movie up, and people are like, oh, yeah, that's a really great film. I'm like, huh? I don't know what I missed and I watched this again and I still don't know what I missed so technically very well done I just don't have any passion for it and, and I have a lot of issues with the story like it, it's not that far off it came out over 50 years later but it's not that different than Song of the South when it's treating racial politics in America which which is kind of shocking and maybe like you said Stuart they're they trying to comment on that I just never got that vibe so yes technically good film, but it's just one. Maybe it goes over my head or something. I just don't get it. I'm not going to walk down that green arrow mile. I, I got to go with a, a week not recommend because I just don't know what this film is about at the end of the day and, and what I'm supposed to go home and, and think about this thing. Stuart. I'm actually, I agree with you, Jacob, and I'm actually going to cite that as a plus. It's the reason why I'm going to say I, probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say on this podcast. The reason why I like Green Mile better than Shawshank Redemption is because Shawshank Redemption is such a reductive finding hope in hell kind of yeah, platitude that's just, it irritates me in so many ways. Whereas this one is mysterious. I can't be sure how to feel about it which creates a whole different sort of vibe than the sentimentality of Shawshank. So although they have some very superficial similarities, this one is more compelling for that reason, because I have to dig in deeper and really check in with myself about how I'm processing what should be a really simple story about a magic man that, that makes people's lives better and then goes E.T. E I mean, this is an E.T. story, and yet... Because of the racial politics, because of all the subplots that they put in there, it's just so much more complicated. And I guess what I admire about the movie is that you can read it as the failings of Tom Hanks. That even though it is asking us for, you know, to feel bad for him, that for somehow it's harder for him to live on and walk people to their death then the actual noble person that he condemned to the electric chair is some kind of irony. And I'm still mulling it over five days after watching the film. So that's some kind of accomplishment. And as you say, this is a well-made film. It's length three hours though it may be, I didn't mind the time. I would have used it differently, I can say that. But that has more to do with how I feel about Frank Darabont as a director than really spending time in this prison. In the end... I guess I'm just feeling generous because I'm usually hating on Stephen King works because I find it kind of interesting and compelling and weird and, and yeah, irritating. I'm going to say this one is worth a look. This one will leave you shaken 
And because of that, for me, it's a mild green arrow. You both went the opposite way I expected you to go based on this podcast, I'll just say. (laughs) (laughs) It's so weird we could say the same thing and have different opinions at the end. Yeah, I like that, though. Yeah, we we largely saw the same movie, but because I was irritated by it and because I was engaged with it, that's truly it, is I found Shawshank so boring and pandering. And this one I really had to wrestle with the whole time. And that just made it more, you know, stimulating to experience. Well, I think I saw the same movie as both of you did. I see a well-made movie that is well-acted. The cast is great top to bottom on this. While I'm a Sam Rockwell fan, and so when I cast him in my head as Percy while reading the book, I just hold on to that. The guy doing Percy was good. Sam Rockwell was good without being too scene-stealing. So a well-made movie, well-acted. Meandering, though. I still have trouble figuring out the through line and the character arcs. You know, a story is supposed to be transformative for your characters. And I don't know that I see Paul transformed. I don't know that I see John Coffey transformed. I think at the end of the story, they're still good people. It is overly sentimental and schmaltzy. That is a problem from King's work that Darabont loves about Stephen King. I'm based upon the three initial works he did, maybe not The Mist, but if you look at Shawshank and this and Woman in the Room, I mean, that's something that just comes with these Darabont King adaptations. But yet, I think the heart of this is real. There is something here people can grasp onto, be it sick loved ones or, I don't know, you have a magical friend who was put in an electric chair wrongly. (laughs) There's something relatable here. Very relatable. It's something for everyone. There's nothing relatable (laughs) about coffee, other than the drink. But the movie is too long. It needed to be trimmed down. I think we had a few ways here that it could have been done. You could have gotten this down to at least two and a half tighter hours. But it's a pretty good movie, especially if you like this type of stuff that I'm not normally drawn to. Schmaltz is not my genre. I found myself taking the devil's advocate position of defending Schmaltz on this podcast. Yeah, you gave me hell. They're like, why can't you celebrate this? I don't, but you should. (laughs) I'm just saying I won't damn all schmaltz, including I won't damn this schmaltz. I'm going to give it a weak recommend. Uh, You should always damn schmaltz. Schmaltz is taking something sentimental and doing it badly. Not all sentimentality is bad, but all schmaltz is bad. And what I would say is this movie, for all its schmaltzy fringes, is not as schmaltzy as Shawshank. And just, again, it has weird edges to it. Again, I can't help but get like indignant about how they're all comfortable condemning their savior. Like, it's just, that has to be a point that you walk away with. That, like, how dare they? How dare they sit there and watch the system kill something that they exploited? I feel like this one's not great, but it is at the bottom of, like, the ones I recommend. I think I've only recommended about 12. Yeah, not great still puts it, like, in top tier for King, usually. It does, it does. It's in between Running Man and Cat's Eye for me. Oh, my God. What a weird (laughs) brethren. Yeah. Yeah, Running Man sounds low on your list. I mean, it was number 10, so this is number 11. Oh, okay. Well, that seems a little high. Yeah, we've reviewed 77 Stephen King movies, and I've only liked 12. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have more to come. Next up is a TV movie called Desperation. 
Oh, great, yeah. Not just a TV movie, directed by Mick Garris and starring his shining star. Red Arrow, we don't need to do it, Red Arrow already. Steven Weber is coming back. Apparently... Nope, Red Arrow. (laughs) It has something to do with... It's not in Maine, so this feels like, you know, something edgy. Oh, a whole new territory. Yeah, yeah. The highways of Nevada, people are being abducted from their cars by an evil sheriff, played by Ron Perlman, and winding up in a town called Desperation. All I can tell you about this is I got so excited because it starred Ron Perlman, and I turned it off 20 minutes into its first airing. Oh, you tried before. Okay. <laughs> yes. You were not desperate enough to have to sit through it. All right. Yeah, that will be the next book. I'm not desperate to watch it, but, you know, it's worth pointing out, too. We've been sitting around for years waiting for a Salem's Lot remake to that's been shot to actually get a release date. They made a prequel to Pet Cemetery that explains why the cemetery brings cats back to life. Why? I think it's got the Wendigo in it. I mean, there's reasons. Probably the most exciting project. The Talisman, the book written by Stephen King back when everyone read Stephen King. Steven Spielberg was actually going to be the one to make it. It's actually being made by Netflix. So we might be covering that one in the next six months as well. So uh, any of those projects could push us back into King. But if none of those materialize in the next half year, I guess we're desperate enough to cover... Desperation. (laughs) Yes, more Mick Garris, Stephen King. But next week, we're going back to Marvel because... The Marvels came out in theaters this past weekend, right? I mean, that was the big movie release. I had it on the schedule at one point as a summer film, but for whatever reason, the wisdom at Disney is that this is more of a Thanksgiving vibe. So in November, we will cover the Marvels. We're going to catch up with all those TV miniseries that will help explain that movie, starting with Ms. Marvel which is apparently a good one. I remember liking it, but I wasn't taking notes and watching with a critical eye. I was watching as a Marvel fan. So that will be next week's show. If you can't have the Marvels because Disney moved it, we'll do Ms. Marvel just instead. And in the weeks ahead, we also got She-Hulk and Secret Invasion. And over on Fridays for donation, uh, we're wrapping up our shark summer with uh, the main event. Jason Statham is going to take on the biggest shark of them all, the Megalodon or the Meg. Yeah, the sequel comes out in theaters this weekend. Our review of the first one will be this Friday and our review of the second one next Friday. Hopefully you can join Brock Stewart and I as we bite into so many shark films, The Shallows, Open Water, 47 Meters Down, and its sequel. Just a lot of shark movies. We hope Now Playing hasn't jumped the shark for you, and instead (laughs) you want to see us keep going and support our show. We are ad-free, 100% crowdfunded. If you are a $25 donor directly to us or $25 patron on our Patreon, you can join us for all of these shark movies this summer. Here, here. I look forward to it. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, get the hell off my block. I couldn't help it, boss. I tried to take it back, but it was too late. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. How in the name of Christ can you call that a success? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, 
Christine, Cujo, Needful Things, It, The Stand, The Shawshank Redemption, The Running Man, The Mist, Stand By Me, Children of the Corn, and more. Well, I knew I'd get them sooner or later. It's just a matter of time, really. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. I need to see you down here, boss. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. What's your missus, please? Several times. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You get that one for free. I guess I'm going to have to pay you out for the rest, huh? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What do you want, John Coffey? Just to help. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. What did you just do to me? I helped it. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're running this show, ain't you? Associate produced by Jason. You've been declared competent, son. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. I'm tired, boss. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Can you talk? Yes, boss. I can talk. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. What happens on a mile stays on a mile, always has. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Dead man! Dead man walking! Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I'll chew that food when I have to. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I dreamed of you. I dreamed you were wandering in the dark. And so was I. I don't know if Michael Clark Duncan, if I've seen too much of his work, I, I he was big in Kingpin, but I, I have no way of scaling how big he was compared to everyone else. He was Kingpin in Daredevil. He wasn't in Kingpin. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, let me say <laughs> it again.